Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest, and in fact, she's a repeat guest. So welcome, Effie. Welcome, Effie Zahos. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure chatting to you. Effie is back because she's got a new book. She's author of several books, but her latest book, which is out on the 2nd of February, is called Ditch the Debt and Get Rich, and it is so timely for these times. Yeah, it, it, it is actually. And um, I wrote the bulk of this, I, I guess, right in the thick of everything when everything was unfolding last year. I mean, the concept was in my mind for, for some time. And I guess someone like myself, it's my job to come up with stories every day. I'm quite used to, to working under the pump. But for me, I really wanted to, to focus on the strategy. So you mentioned those other books that the first one I'm really proud of. It's a kid's book. It was written because my son was a spenderholic. The other one was more targeted because of my girlfriends and talking to women. And it is more a story with a, a lot of reflection on how I did things personally, the, from a Real Girl's Guide to, to Money from Converse to Louboutins, whereby this one is more getting down to the nuts and bolts, the, the questions I get asked the most and the strategies. I mm. find with no time poor that I just want to know the answer. Now, the answer may not suit everyone. And this is where things get personal and this is where you may need to get some advice yourself. But if it's the nudge that gets you along, then I'm happy. Mm, Well, as we were discussing before, what I really loved about your writing in general, but particularly in this book, is how you do crunch those numbers. You look at different strategies and you go, well, if you do this one, if you're focusing on paying off your home, for instance, this is what it'll be. If you're focused on improving your superannuation, for instance, this is what it'll be. And so then people can make an informed choice too about what sort of strategy they want and to think about their risk and psychologically what feels good for them, but also just to look at the cold, hard numbers. Yeah, and that can take a while. So (laughs) these chapters, even though they're they're easy to read in in the style that I normally write straight to the point, there's a lot of time taking and crunching those numbers. So when you look at um, one of the questions about the, the property market, do you jump in now and pay I know there's lots of other options now for first-time buyers, which is great, but just stripping it back to the basics. You have to run two scenarios there because, you know, I don't know where the property market's going to go and nobody does in that sense. So what happens if it goes up? This is what could it, This is what it could look like. Yep. What happens if it goes down? This is what it could look like. And then it's up to you as to, to judge, well, where am I buying? If it's going to go up, then this could happen. Hey, I may be better off jumping in and paying lender's mortgage insurance so I'm not chasing my tail. That takes a lot of time to crunch those numbers. So I I hope that's what readers can get out of it and uh, get the joy out of that. Look, I really enjoyed that chapter because I know conventional wisdom is that lenders' mortgage insurance is a bad thing because it's so expensive. And 
it's really it's protecting the lender. It's not protecting you. That's right, isn't it? It's not really. Absolutely, yeah. And I've had situations where people have been sold up. This is when, oh, many, many years ago, as a lending manager for a major bank and they had negative equity. And then the the mortgage insurer can, by right, chase you for the difference in legal fees and the shortfall. So you're absolutely right, Serena. It is an insurance for the lender, not for the borrower. Exactly. It doesn't protect you at all. I myself have used lender's mortgage insurance on a few occasions, particularly with our first home, which my ex-husband and I purchased in 2001. It was a very rapid rising market back in 2001. There was the stimulus payments that were really property prices were zooming. And so we were able to get in early and take advantage of that trend. Had we waited 12 to 18 months, ooh, like I, I just don't think we would have got in the market. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that the, the story I use uh, with David and Michael are, are actually a story of my close friends anyway. So a lot, of the, uh, <laughs> a lot of the case studies are the stories, you know, watch out if you're my friend because you could end up in my book. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it is really important to think because, you know, not we always assume that property markets go up and up and up, but they don't yeah. really. No. And it's difficult to predict. Like who would have predicted that over the last 12 months that property prices had gone up? Like, you know, back in March, people thought that the property market was going to crash. Well, look, I think with the property market, the, the, the thing, and, and you're right, te- technically we were in a recession and technically, you know, property prices should fall. But the thing that's kept property prices up, three main things you're looking at record low interest rates. Yes. That's that's happened. Uh, A a ridiculous amount of stimulus payments and and the the government also coming through through bond buying and stimulating the economy that way. And then we've also got the amount of grants coming for first-time buyers. Those three things have really prevented the the property market falling off the cliff. And when we look at, I think, CoreLogic data numbers just came out recently and again showing that the medium house prices continue to rise. I feel there's a lot of pressure for people wanting to jump in the market this year to want to jump in earlier because of this pressure. Mm. But do tick your boxes, buy well, look at any infrastructure that's going around there, have a look at the yields if you're going to become an investor. You really, you know, don't jump in because of FOMO, fear of missing out. And I touch on that in the book. Jump in for the right reasons. But I understand the pressure for property buyers because it is all talk that this will continue. Yeah, and it's hard to time it and it's hard to know what to do. And disclosure here, I'm actually in the process of selling a property just because we thought, well, you know, the market's trending up. So like, why not? And usually you hold things for the long term. But in this case, we've only held it for three years. But the market was so hot and there were a few issues there with um, some renovations that needed to be done. My husband had a heart attack after we purchased the property, not related to it, but so sort of our willingness to DIY major things is sort of decreased. So there there are some reasons for selling it. But basically, we're just taking advantage of the the, the booming property market. So will you jump in at the same time? Because there's the risk there too. You want to jump in in the same property time and the same property market. Otherwise, you could find yourself outpriced again if you wait too long. There's so many things to, to, to factor in, yeah. Yeah, well, we have other properties, so it's it's not we're not worried about being locked out of the market because we have other investment properties, so we're only selling one small one, so it's not the end of the world. You do, you lose when you sell, I think. You win when you buy and you lose when you sell, but then sometimes there, if you are just holding on to everything, there's a risk too. Mm. Which brings me back to the beginning of your book, which I loved your use of animals to describe money mindset behaviours. So I have to ask, which animal are you? <laughs> I think I have a couple of multiple personalities, which is fine. You can definitely be a cross between a few. 
I would say I am um, a cross between the investor and the spender, easily. And so what animals? <laughs> yeah, also, sorry, yes, I am the peacock. The peacock I've put down as the spender, being flamboyant in the sense that, you know, got those, I deserve this, money is meant to be spent. Maybe not to that extreme, but I certainly have elements of the spender in there, but also quite a lot um, with the owl. I do check my investments every day. I kid you not. Most of them, not all of them. The ones that excite me, I check all the time. And I would definitely move around for a better deal, always chasing the better deal. And so much so even, you know, obviously I have a cash cushion account and I do chase the best rates. And unfortunately, it's not easy, let me tell you, because it's got to be cash. Cash in the bank is backwards at the moment. But there are some great deals out there, 2.1. Now it's gone down to 1.75. But these are only four months deals. Mm. So I do have a lot of cash accounts in the sense I, I drop one as soon as the rate goes and move to another. I must say, even though it's online banking, it is hard moving to some of these other smaller players. A lot of neo banks are closing. Ninja just pulled out of the market. I know. And we got 86400 that's now been taken up by Ubank. It is hard to keep chasing the best deals, but if you have a cash account, it's got to stay in cash and you've got to move it to the best rates. Mm, it is important to watch, definitely. Well, I've got to be honest here and say that I identified very strongly with the squirrel personality, which is probably no surprise. <laughs> um, but can I just ask, you know, what are the downfalls to, say, being someone like me who is a squirrel? So there's a lot of people who yeah. listen to this who identify, I guess, as being frugalisters and being good at saving. But is being so good at saving, too good at saving, is that a thing? Yeah. And you notice I didn't say I was a squirrel. So like I do, I'm multiple personalities. I'll change. Maybe next year when rates are up, I might be a bit of a squirrel. Um, so for me, there is a risk with regular saving is great. But if you go to the extreme that you prefer having your money in cash, there's real danger there because there's a big difference between saving and investing. And while cash is a very important part of anybody's portfolio, it should not be your whole amount. And especially someone as young as you, Serena, you've got time on your hands. <laughs> you need to you know, dial up that risk a little bit and start, you know, maybe investing more so because the risk with the squirrel, as I point out, is that you do miss opportunities because you're so concerned about getting those nuts and hiding them <laughs> and just building that up than actually building wealth for the long term. And when you look at inflation at the moment is really low. So that that's okay. That's good. Looking at the latest numbers that came out, I think they were like 0.9, well below within the RBA's target of two to three. But once we get higher inflation, then you know that money in the bank is actually losing you money. So it's best to kind of get a nice balance between the, the saver and the investor. It's a hard call, isn't it? Like particularly there's been a lot of focus on having emergency funds. Yeah especially because a lot of people were caught out in March that they didn't have yeah. emergency funds and they didn't necessarily want to take money out of superannuation, although a lot yeah. did, or shares during March, especially when the market had really fallen dramatically. So in a way, you do need some form of access to funds for when the unforeseen happens. But I guess the flip side of that is if all of your money is there in a nice, safe thing like a bank on a low interest rate, there's also a risk too. Well, look, if you've got, yes, we all agree we need some kind of cash account. So where would you stash that cash? And I talk about a lot of this in the book as far as your cash cushions and getting there. But actual accounts, what you can consider, if you have a home loan, it's a no-brainer. You put it into your redraw offset account. 
just check if you've got redraw because there could be terms and conditions that, as we saw, I think, ME Bank a little while ago, can change the conditions. So if your circumstances change, technically, they can close that redraw facility. And if you're selling a home like you're saying, you've got that money in your redraw, you've got to make a call. What do I want it to do? Do I want it to knock it off the debt or do I take it out because I don't want them to knock that off the debt? So that's a no-brainer. You keep your cash cushion in your home loan so it offsets the interest on the home loan. If you don't have a home loan, that's great. Congratulations. You then have to chase the best rates, what I was talking about before. There's not much you can do. And you're right. It's got to stay in cash because that's what it's there for. Because obviously, if you're going to invest in another asset class, you want to be able to, to get that out fast. And, you know, the other ones like, you know, exchange traded funds, whatever the case may be, are not suited for cash accounts. No, I mean, they're, they're fairly quick, but it still takes a couple of days. And if the market has moved unfavorably, you may not want to liquidate them at, at that time as well. It's, it's a hard call. But look, there's like five money personalities. I think you can be a cross between the two. And also, I'd love to see, you know, the... Uh, the uh, mix between partnerships too. I'm not sure what your partner is. If you're the saver, will he be the spender? <laughs> well, actually, no, he's a saver as well. I think that's why we get on so well. But oh, he's actually you even more. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, usually there's one who's more more of a saver and oddly I think he's more of a saver than me. But yeah. the, the flip side of that is though that we both identify as being very conservative investors. And so we've been very good, for instance, at working together on paying off the home loan on the mortgage on our main residence, but less good in terms of taking risks with other things. So, you know, that's that's the downsides when when you've got two savers. Mm. So let's talk about debt because I know this is a big focus in your book and certainly we've had an extraordinary year and a bit. So we've had bushfires here in Canberra, we've had smoke haze for months, had COVID and then we've had a recession. And so what has this taught a lot of Australians about debt? It's been, if there's been one good thing to come out of this pandemic is our behaviour to money and the habits that we have created during lockdown. I hope a lot of us will continue with those onwards. So there were two types of kind of people through this period over the past 12 months. Those that were prepared for the unexpected clearly turned lemons into lemonade. There were great opportunities to be made. And, um, you know, there are people that have done very well out of this situation financially, of course, I'm talking about. On the other side of the fence, we saw the amount, what, over 3 million Aussies ripped their super funds out because it became the lifesaver for them. And unfortunately, it was bailing themselves out. That wasn't a stimulus from the government. That was yourself ripping your retirement out. And I understand a lot of people had no other choice and they had to do it. And it's interesting now there's a whole lot of debate that people on low income uh, low income should be given a 5,000 one-off payment back into their super fund. Now, that would be interesting if that gets across. I guess if you took it out, you'd be happy. If you didn't take it out, boy, you'd be mad about that for sure. Mm. Personally, I think there's more effective ways that low-income earners can be helped through the super process. And, and I think the Retirement Income Review really highlighted a lot of strategies there. But that would be interesting to see how that goes. So there were those of us that took money out of our super because we just didn't have a, a cash account. The silly season is over for a lot of us. Whatever travels we could do domestically, we've done. A lot of us may have had cash for that. Others may not have, may have racked up some more debt. Kids are back to school and that mm-hmm. costs a bond. It I does. Know. A lot of people, unfortunately, may have had to rack up further debt to get kids to school, the school books, the tech, the shoes, all, all the rest of the stuff the disruptors that have just happily coming along all the time, the buy now, pay later. So even though credit card debt overall has fallen, 
they did spike in uh, November and I'll see December numbers. I'm sure they're going to be up as well. But overall, it's trending downwards. But that's because we've got other disruptions now. So you might be a big fan of buy now, pay later, and that could be hitting your hip pocket, so to speak. Mm. So there is a whole chapter here on handling debt. And again, you know, because I love crunching numbers, there there is actually a scenario putting debt strategies to test. You've probably heard the avalanche, the snowball, snowball method. You're looking at personal loans, looking at redraws, looking at balance transfer cards. So I take a debt and then work out, okay, what is the fastest way to pay this off? Assuming a whole lot of scenarios, of course, which is why I say your finances are personal. They might be different to that scenario. But it's a great way to just look at this snapshot and just see, oh, okay, that's the cheapest, but will it work for me? Exactly. That's a very good point. And we're talking about this before. There's a lot of people who say that this is the one strategy, the one way that you get out of debt. And so I was really intrigued to read your book to see what your take was on this. There's definitely no one strategy. Like I've helped quite a few people and and, um, a few friends, obviously, also with debt strategies. And a lot of my role, I guess, in other titles was doing some makeovers and contacting banks and changing their financial affairs in the sense that they've got a lot of debt, refinancing. And, you know, I know zero balance transfer cards are a big deal and a lot of people look at them and think they're a way out. I'm very cautious of zero balance transfer deals. And the reason being is there are a lot of conditions attached to them. Mm. If you find one, I think the longest I well, it could be like 15 months or 24 months, some of them can be quite long. The balance transfer fee, you've got to watch out for. So it might be 0%, but if they're charging you a balance transfer fee and your balance is actually quite low, the effective rate on that is very high. Mm. So I've done sums as well as what does that mean? It could be a 0% can turn suddenly into 8% depending on your balance. And also if it's with a subsidiary lender, so we know that, you know, one bank may own several others, you may not get approval. They may not approve the full amount. Some of them like to have a buffer, will only refinance up to 80%. You're stuck with two cards. So for me, the simple thing is really understand, first of all, what puts you there in the first place, because that could actually put you back there again. If exactly. You exactly. Yeah. If, you're, if you're addicted to retail therapy, and you can yeah. laugh at this, but this is it's a big thing when you're feeling down and that's how you deal with, thank God it's Friday or whatever. And if you oh. haven't addressed that, it's still a problem. That's right. And also, if you don't have a one, you know, we hear so many experts say maybe, you know, you need three months of your salary. That, that can be quite off-putting to start a cash cushion. I, I don't even care if you've got $1,000 in there because that $1,000 will then, a lot of people find themselves into debt because something blows out, the fridge goes, the tyres blow, your kids, you know, need a laptop because they broke it, whatever the case. You don't have that $1,000. So then you rack it up on your credit card again or you're on buy now, pay later. So that's a problem. If you don't have that $1,000, no matter what you do to try to pay that debt, you're going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're mm. back in that situation. So for me, the first step, which is why I start the book on the psychology side, and I've worked with Phil Slade, a behavioural economist and psychologist on that, is to get that right first. Get your money mindset right and then move into the debt strategies. That makes sense too. And it's also too, I think, you know, going from this sort of negativity you have about money, you know, like often people are in debt because they just can't handle money. They might have had, you know, negative um, conversations about money growing up. And there's a lot of negativity attached with money. They see a, a bill in the mail and it sets them off. They can't even look at it. 
For some people, they can't even look at a bank statement because there's so many alarms. Yeah, so you're once an I think you, <laughs> you're an ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about the ostriches <laughs> in the sand. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of ostriches out there, yeah. and, it, and it's a real thing. And it's so complex because there's so many years of money mindset behind that, that conditioning before you even get to to yeah. the bill being in your mailbox that you've got to deal with. Well, a lot of your behaviours still happen by the age of seven. I mean, that mindset comes in with young kids at seven about money. They learn from you. They see you. They, you know, you do you stress with money? What do you do? How do you handle it? But then again, I'm a great believer that uh, you talk to like behavioural columns like Phil Slade in the book, you can change some of that money mindset. Of course you can. And another good trigger point is when you first get your job, you're a 20-year-old, you can establish some really good pay habits then because that's probably the first time you do have a part-time job or a full-time job and establishing how you handle that money. Which is a big thing too, you know, reflecting back on my first jobs, I was always keen on saving and investing. But there weren't as many tools that were available then to a 16-year-old as there are now, which is one of the great things that we've seen, I think. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, I'm a big believer in making the kids financially savvy so they can get out of your house earlier. That is a big (laughs) tip. And my 14-year-old, I think I've really finally drummed it into him. He received a statement the other day. He has an online saver and a goal he's saving for his own car and he puts a picture of it on the app. So there's lots of great tools for Wow. But he was very upset to see the interest he earned for that month and he literally scrunched up the uh, statement and threw it. Now, naturally, I was angry that he threw it on the floor and then asked him why he's still receiving paper statements and not online. But I said, well, if you're not happy with that, do something about it. And then that was a segue for us to, for him, not me, for him to invest personally in in an exchange-traded fund. So you have opportunities to, to talk to your kids at different levels and at different ages because not all kids are willing to talk about it at a young age and that's okay. Yeah, I'm laughing here because my eight-year-old has decided that he wants to be a billionaire YouTube star with multiple houses. <laughs> and I said to him, are we allowed to live with you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, you can live with me. Seeing he's only eight, I, I don't think legally he'd be allowed to live by himself anyway. <laughs> They all want to be YouTube megastars. Yeah, well, he does have a YouTube channel, so we're halfway there. (laughs) But let's go back to debt a little bit. And so you've crunched the numbers. You've looked at a a situation where someone had multiple debts in different ways. Mm. And what was the kind of result? Which is better? Is it a snowball? And I probably need to get you to explain to some people what a snowball is. Is it an avalanche or is it something else? Yeah, look, so there. I think the important thing is if you have a lot of debt, number one, Write it all down. So I have a car loan. I owe $10,000 and the interest rate is, I don't know, 10%. Write it all down. List all your debts. And then you've got a a good idea of where you actually stand here. And then you can take some approaches. I mean, when I crunched the numbers, the obvious was if you have a home loan, you could put it in your home loan and top it up. And I've got scenarios there. Of course, you've got to speed up your repayments there and I've got the repayments that you need to do it so you pay it off. You don't want to amortise it over your 25-year term or 20-year term. Yeah, that's a big thing. A lot of people don't make additional repayments. You have to because otherwise you might as well have gone onto a high credit card because that's what it's going to be after 10 years on your home loan. And then looking at a personal loan, say at 12%, that came in in next spot. Your snowball and avalanches are quite good if you've got a couple of debts and you say to yourself, well, the snowball method is paying the smallest debt to the largest. And there's real benefit in that because if you did that list and then you arranged it from smallest to largest, 
and then you make your minimum repayments on all the others and channel everything you've got into the first one. Then if it's only a $1,000 debt, say, by funneling all your extra repayments from your other debts because you're only paying minimum there, you'll pay it off fast. You'll cross it off your list. You'll feel great and you move on. If that works for you, go for it. Even if it may cost a little bit more, So the avalanche then is a different way. You you then highest interest rate first and and then move downwards. But for me, it's about you sitting down, writing that list and putting an action plan in place. You do that, then you're winning. It's a big thing I could imagine for people who are in crippling debt just to be able to face the debt and to write down what debts they have, how much they are and and how much interest is being paid on those. It is. And if you're wanting to consolidate, if you've got too many debts, so, you know, once you write your list, you realise, I'm never going to get through this. This is too much. I'd be better off wrapping it into one small loan. The, The way I would approach that is who have you got your most loans with? And if it's one particular bank, go to that one particular bank. The thing is, there's a couple of things here. They've got the most to lose by you not paying this debt. And you need to say that to them. You need to say, look, 70% of all my bad debts are with you. You're either going to help me or I'm not going to be able to pay this off and I'm going to have to go bankrupt Mm. and you're not going to get anything out of me. They will far rather get money back than make you bankrupt in that regard. I always would target the person that you have the most amount of debt with. And then also under financial hardship, by law, they have to come up with some repayment plan. So if you are in that financial hardship situation, do not be embarrassed to tell them. Do not be afraid to tell them because that is going to get you a repayment plan in structure. And believe me, I have seen banks waive interest on credit cards. I've got to that situation where all the amount of credit outstanding is gone. I've seen banks wipe out credit card debt to help the consumers. And I've been involved in those negotiations. It is quite amazing what can happen if you put a repayment plan, but you've got to be organised. And that's why I say target the lender with the most amount of debt. Do a little income outgo ratio and show that I'm actually at 60% of all my income is going towards paying your debt at these rates. If you put me on this lower one, my income ratio falls down to, say, 30%. Now, under financial hardship, you have to help me, and I want this. Consolidate the debt to this and see what you get. I think you've touched on a really important point there, which is to communicate. And I guess it's really hard, like a lot of people who are in debt are probably ostriches. They're probably naturally ostriches, which is why it's got out of hand to that extent. It's quite a bit of a habit change for them to come around and to communicate. But it's not so scary when you talk to these institutions, as as you've just noted. And it's not just financial institutions, it's also utility providers and others. I had a lady on my course who actually had worked in a role where she was working for a debt collector. And she's like, well, at the end of the day, you're talking to real people like me, for instance, who's got kids and a hubby and wants to feel good about herself when she goes back at the end of the day. She's like, if you're talking to people like me, be polite, be nice. I'll try and help you if I can. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's absolutely true. You've got to be you've got to be polite both ways, otherwise you'll get nowhere. <laughs> well, exactly, because I, I guess they will try and be helpful, but if you're a bit cocky and yeah. a bit rude or you're not communicating, they, they don't have to yeah. do extra things for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely a big thing to communicate. I just wanted to ask one final thing, which is in your book, you talk about a lot of the common marketing mind games and strategies that retailers and other businesses will use to hook people into buying more. So in this frugal February, what are some of the things that frugalisters can look out for and be wary of to sort of stop some of that impulse buying? Yeah. 
I do love this chat because this came out, I must say, I was at my local greengrocer and they do this every time and I always go, oh, wow. And then I realised, oh, no, that's a marketing trick there. Two for $5. And I think, gee, what's the bargain? And then I look down in the fine print or $2.50 each. And I think, oh, hold it. That's not a sale. And it gets me every time. And I think if you know, if you shop at this place, you'll know exactly where I'm shopping. <laughs> if you know, you've seen this sign before. So there's a lot of marketing games that are out there that trick us into spending. And if you are one of these spenders or easily trip into spending more than you plan, then you've got to know what it is and try and counteract it. I do actually spend a bit of time looking at cashbacks and sticking to financial products. There's always this big thing about refinance your home loan, get $4,000 back. Oh, yeah. You see that all the time. Yeah. And I weigh up the the, um, the, the figures as to are you better to get the $4,000 cash, get that, or are you better to get a low rate? What's the break-even point of, of who wins out there? Some other not-so-obvious ones are like uh, free trials. We see this, especially if you've got an extended family, big family. You sign up. You want to see something on Stan. You want to see something on Netflix. You want to see something on, uh, I don't know, um, uh, uh, KO, whatever. Now, you sign up. It's a free free trial, 30 days. It's no problem. The trouble is once you sign up to something like that, it's quite hard either to, A, you forget to unsign, or, B, there's a huge emotional loss of getting rid of something. And you often think, no, I can, I can absorb that and so on because they've now – Given your behaviour, you are used to it, you're accustomed to it, and it's a big loss to get rid of that out of your life. So do take care with free trials. The other simple things are the reason why I guess Uber is so popular, Uber Eats or Ola, paying up front, they're very smart. Putting a fixed price up, up front removes the pain of uncertainty and pain later. If you are a big fan of these apps where you paid up front, you have got into another habit because Jumping into, say, a share ride and then pulling out the cash is more painful than just clicking a few buttons. Ship, uh, separate shipping. When you see online $28 plus free shipping versus $24 and in fine print $4 shipping, you think that's a great deal. I'm going to take that. Then there's a rule of thumb, a rule of 100. Percentage discounts are used on small values to make it look like a better deal. So $20, you get $2 off doesn't sound like a great deal. Or $20, 10% off, that sounds even better. Wow, a whole 10%. Yeah. <laughs> so watch it as opposed to two bucks. Two bucks, I think, oh, that's not big. Well, when you see percentages, the rule of 100 can drag you in. Little things like commas, and I didn't think about this too much until I kept visualising it. When they put commas in dollar figures, researchers have found that removing the comma can make the price seem lower. Have a look at that. Have a bit of a play and see, does that Wow. Yeah, so there's lots of things. And payment in instalments is all about what makes success to, to buy now, pay later. $399, oh, my goodness, that's too high. Four payments of just 99 bucks seems so much more reasonable. What happens here is people anchor on the lower price, and that's why it's so successful. And I talk about these decoy pricing as well. There was a great research done by National Geographic about buckets of popcorn where there was a small bucket of popcorn for $3 and a large one at 7 Now, when there was only two prices, nearly everyone went for the small one because the $7 just felt like a rip-off. No way I'm going to go for the $3 bucket. But then they were offered a third bucket, and this one was $6.50. That's called the decoy, the decoy bucket. And it was interesting when they videotaped this of everyone coming in, everyone suddenly chose the $6.50 over the $3 one because they thought, 
oh, $7, mm, that's expensive, but $6.50, well, uh, you know, that's not too much. Sorry, sorry. They got the, the large one at $7, not the $6.50. That's a decoy one. So I probably didn't explain that too well. You got $3, $6.50 and 7 throw the decoy price in at $6.50, they move up. Ah, that's interesting because I've often seen things where there are three options and basically, you know, the marketers want you to buy the middle one. So the top one's quite expensive and the first one is, you know, either cheap or free but doesn't have a lot. So you look at that at first and then you go, yeah, but like it's sort of not going to do much for you. But I don't really need to go for the super, super professional bells and whistles. Sometimes they intentionally put a really expensive price and a low one and the middle one is what they want. In this case, yeah. by putting the middle one so close to the high price, you think you're getting more value. I'm just going to pay 50 cents more and I'll get the larger popcorn. Yeah, it's fascinating it the way is, you know, they do this. It is yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, Effie, where can people find you? Now, they can find you at CanStar, is that right? I'm the editor-at-large of CanStar, but the book um, is at all good bookstores. So even get online, just Google it online, Booktopia, wherever you'll find it. So that's Ditch the Debt and Get Rich by Effie Zahos, and there are so many tips in there. If you've ever wondered what strategy you should take with your finances or if you know someone who's experiencing debt or you are yourself, There are so many strategies in here and so many perspective that is really going to help you get through. So it's a great read. It's an easy read. It's it's quite easy to bring it down into chunks so you can read a bit at a time, which is one thing I love about your work, Effie, that you just make it really, really easy just to take the the bits that you need when you need it. Oh, thank you. I feel we're all time poor, so we might as well get to the point. Yeah, exactly. And if you love this and other topics, make sure you please subscribe to the Joyful Frugalista podcast and also check out the Facebook group as well for further discussion. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. What if we got together? We could watch You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. I said